0: Thank you. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone. My name's Steve. Can I actually grab all of your Bibles if you've got them with you? Open them up. Open them up. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It is great to have you with us. And you join us on the second week of this series that we're doing in the book of Exodus. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 1, let me just tell you this. that The theme of Exodus, as we've been told by both Ben and by Steve, is God revealing his glory through the saving and freeing of a people whom he will dwell amongst and through whom he will further display his glory To the world. Amen. That's the theme. It's all about God revealing his glory to a people that he frees, a people that he dwells amongst, and a people that he will use to further display his glory right across the world. And last week we saw right at the beginning that God is a God of promise, that he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through the dysfunctional family of Jacob and Joseph. We see a multitude of people growing from a promise that was made to an old man who had no kids. And because people were growing and growing, then they find themselves growing and multiplying in the land of Egypt. We've got a lot to do today. I'm going to read a portion. We'll talk about it. Then we'll read some more. We'll talk about it, and we'll go that way. So grab your Bibles. Exodus 1 verse 8. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Father, bless our time. Reveal to us the wonder of who you are in and through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, as you look through history, one of the ways that oppression begins and oppression is fostered towards another race, another nation, another people group, is the fostering of fear that comes from insecurity. The fostering of a fear that comes from insecurity. It's only in the last few hundred years that we have seen the fostering of fear that has brought unwarranted insecurity that has led to the hatred and oppression towards different people and different races all across the world. We saw it through the regime of Hitler and the Nazis towards the Jewish people. You see it through the fostering of fear through a racial threat argument that was used to deadly effect during the apartheid in South Africa. We've seen the oppression, and we know in history, the oppressions of millions of Africans, people captured and trafficked across the Atlantic, to be incarcerated and held in bondage, all for the building up of Western civilization. And we see it in the fear and insecurity that is wrongly felt when people from certain countries take residence in our own streets. See, what we read in these first few verses is something that, yes, happened thousands of years ago. And folks, yes, happened and with the actions of a man who was in great power and was over the most powerful nation in the world. But what we read here is something that we are all susceptible to. All susceptible to because of sin and the distortion it brings. So folks, as we read through this, what we've got to make sure that we realize is that the forces at work here in this story are the same forces at work today that are attempting to destroy humanity through humanity. See, what we see right at the beginning is that there rose up a new king, a new pharaoh, and the Bible tells us they didn't know Joseph. He didn't know him. He'd forgotten who Joseph was. He'd he'd forgotten that Joseph and Joseph's family, Jacob, were not enemies of Egypt, but were in fact allies of Egypt. That actually the prosperity and the wealth and the status of Egypt had something to do with the reign of Joseph himself many years before. But all this new king, this new pharaoh was concerned about was his own power. And as the people of Israel multiplied for no reason other than the fact that they were growing, he felt insecure. And that insecurity bred to fear. Fear of Israel. You see that verse 9. What does he say? There are too many people and they are too mighty for us. He says there, verse 10, if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and they will fight against us and they will escape from the land. They weren't even slaves. See, we see the hatred and the fear building up because of this insecurity that this new king had. And then the response to this was oppression. But firstly, what he does is creates insecurity and fear amongst the people that he has influence over. The Egyptians. Verse ten. What does he say to them? Let us deal shrewdly with them. Verse eleven. They, because of that, set taskmasters over them and burdening them. And verses thirteen to fourteen. They made their lives bitter, working as slaves and building up of the Egyptian empire through the building of the store cities of Python and Ramesses. But folks, let us not miss that Pharaoh is not only creating a conflict with Israel, he is in fact creating conflict and picking a fight with God. With every crack of the whip, Pharaoh was striking another blow against the plans and the purposes of God. Folks, oppression against humanity, whatever form it takes, is an attack on God. Human beings, we are created as image bearers to display the glory of God to the world, and any form of ridicule, disregard, harm, or oppression is an affront to God, is an affront to His plan, and it's an affront to His purposes. And in the oppression of God's people, Pharaoh is picking a fight with God and engaging in a spiritual conflict. He is declaring through this his resentment and his disdain for God's people. He is sanctioning plans that were against God's plan to make Israel a great nation. And he was seeking to thwart God's purposes of giving them a land of their own by ensuring, verse 10, that they would not. Escape. They would not escape. See, what we read in these first few verses, in short, we see the picture of a man in rebellion against God. A man man who resents his people. A man who resents his plan. A man who resents his purpose. And because of his insecurity and fear, he seeks to oppress God's people, suppress truth, and picks a fight with God. Can I ask you? Is that you this morning? Are you in rebellion? Do you resent his people? Are you actively or even passively seeking to suppress truth? Folks, yes, this man was the most powerful man in the world at the time. it's the picture of the heart of a man who has the wrong fear, is insecure, and as a result, oppresses. Please be assured that no one can thwart God's plan and God, as we will read, will stop at nothing to fulfill his purpose. See, despite the oppression and the persecution of God's people, God's people continue to multiply. It tells us there, and to spread abroad. And the Egyptians became even more fearful. So Pharaoh raises the volume. Let's read verses 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives of, of one who was named Shiphrah and the other Puah. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. See, secondly, we, hear, we see here, not, we see fear, security, and we see bravery. See, Pharaoh raises the volume of oppression from just slavery to infanticide. And he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill any Israel baby boys that they deliver whilst the mothers are recovering from birth. See, what Pharaoh is doing here is instructing those who are serving to bring life. He's instructing them to become instruments of death. But what we see here is com- See, it is something in complete contrast to Pharaoh's fear and Pharaoh's insecurity. In the responses of the two women who are out of a right fear and a right security. Verse 17 because the midwives feared God, they did not do what had been asked of them and they let the little boys live. See, the midwives did not do as the king commanded because they were secure in the God that they served, the God of Israel, who is the giver of life, and they feared him more than they feared Pharaoh. Folks, these ladies understood that obeying God is always the safest thing, despite the consequences that you could face. They had a security in who God is and who they were as his people that enabled them to bravely disobey Pharaoh. These two ladies knew the security and godly fear that Jesus talked about when he said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now there's much debate and a lot of ink been spilled Over how the midwives responded to Pharaoh. (laughs) Okay. He goes to them, why have you done this? And their response is, is it a lie? Did they lie to him? A lot of people have got all upset about whether they lied and whether they didn't and what was going on. The question is, did they lie? My answer, probably. Did they bear false witness? I think they did. Think about it, their explanation was a bit ridiculous. The Hebrew women, they're much better than the Egyptians. They pop them out like a bullet from a gun. It's so quick, we can't get there in time. Come on, I've been at four births. It was traumatic, it was really traumatic for me. I'm telling you now, and every one of them was different. For the same lady, might I clarify. Everyone was different. Did they bear false witness? They probably did. But folks, there are a few things that I think is right for us to be aware of as you look at this because nothing in the way God works out his purpose is done in the black and white. It's always in the gray. Life is gray. It is, isn't it? Life is gray. If we were a church that was all about black and all about white, it's wrong and it's right. We'd be a place that have no grace whatsoever. Whatsoever. There are a few things that we need to think about. See, this lie was told to protect innocent children from a man who had no right to the truth. No right to the truth. And they did this service in the midst of the gray of the situation. Out of service of life and love. Because they feared the God who was the giver of life. And before maybe we all get uptight on, oh, but they still lied on what's going on. Verse 20, it tells us that God dealt with them well. It tells us that God was pleased with them. And it also tells us, verse 20, that even though Pharaoh tried to control the population through infanticide, Israel continued to multiply and they grew very strong. They grew very strong. Now, folks, I'm not saying that the, me, the ends always justifies the means. I am not saying that. But what I'm saying in this context, that those people in the midst of the difficult circumstances, in the midst of the fact that their lives could be taken from them, they feared God. They were secure in who he was. And they were people who did not suppress truth. They were people that lived in light of truth. They bore false witness for the sake of love And they lied to a man who had no right of the truth. No right. See folks, a right fear of God brings a security that will enable us to stand for him, his purpose, and his truth. Fearing God means obeying him and standing for him even when there is a threat of oppression, persecution, and being ostracized. And the issue is this, I pray that none of us are put in the position like these two godly midwives were. Hope none of us. In fact, from what I understand, there's even pressure. There's pressure for midwives to engage in things. And that may get ramped up even in our day and age. And my prayer is that none of us are going to be put in that position whatsoever. But let us not be blind to the fact that we live in days where this sort of decision to make a stand is real for us. It's real. As God's people, we are constantly in positions where we need to decide whether we fear God or whether we fear other people. In situations where we have to make the decision, do we stand for God? Do we stand for his truth? Do we put our head above the parapet? And these situations seems to be increasing both at home, at work, in school, at university as the values of following God are a, cont- a contradiction and even an offense to the culture that we are living in. Folks, we need to fear God and we need to know we are secure in Him and we need to be brave for the cause of Christ because God has redeemed a people made up of you and me to display His glory too and to display his glory through to the nations of which your family, friends, and colleagues are part of that. We need to be brave. And folks, I hope and pray that we have the bravery and the boldness like these women because our security in God and because we have a right fear of him. But the story goes on, and Pharaoh doesn't stop there. Because of his fear and his insecurity, he turns up the the volume, verse 22, to full-blown genocide. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and da- daubed it. How would you say that? Daubed it? Daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know that w- what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. Go. Right in the middle of this oppression, right in the middle of this infanticide, right into the middle of this full-blown genocide, a little baby is born. Chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that his dad was called Amram and his mom was called Jochebed and they were from the tribe of Levi. Levi. Now, Jochebed had the baby, but she keeps the baby secret for three months. And when it gets to the, p- the point where she can't keep him a secret anymore, what she does is she creates a basket. She makes it, it would have been like a baby's basket that they would have been hel- uh, held in. But what she did was she covered it with bitumen and she made it waterproof, as waterproof as she could. And she put it amongst the reeds of the riverbank and lets it go. She sends her daughter, Miriam. Go, follow, go and see what happens to the baby. Now, it's interesting as you read this, in verse three, the word for basket is the same word that is used in Genesis for ark. It's the only other place that it's used in the Bible. And folks, what we can't miss here is that this is a hint that at this stage that God is gonna save and preserve a people through this baby boy, much like the way he did Noah and his family. It's a picture of going into the water and coming out safe on the other side like we saw with Noah and his family. But as you read through the story, the circumstances couldn't get any worse, could they? Because who is the person who finds the baby in the Nile? The daughter of the man who was commanded that all the baby boys are to be killed, Pharaoh's daughter. As she opens up the basket, verse 6, she straight away recognizes him as a Hebrew child. But rather than obey her father, she responds well. And she responds well to the baby sister Miriam who bravely offers to find a nanny to come and nurse and care for the baby she goes and gets her mum. Her mum comes, the one who put the baby in the bulrushes. She ends up nursing her very own son amongst his and her people for probably two to three years before she's given back to Pharaoh's daughter and adopted as his son. And named Moses, which means I drew him out of the water. Isn't God kind, folks? No? Isn't God kind? Let's not miss that. How kind is that? Of all the people. A couple of things to consider. That there was a moment in history when the most powerful man in the world was killing every Hebrew baby boy. And as that was happening, God's entire plan to triumph over that evil was traveling down the River Nile in a basket. How boss is that? If you're not from Liverpool, that means it's great. How boss is that? We also need to consider that the pity shown by Pharaoh's daughter is a glimpse that God's plan of redemption and purpose was not just for Israel, but for all nations, including the Egyptians. See that God was even working on her heart. She would have been completely sold hook, line, and sinker to the regime and the heart of her father and everything that she'd experienced. But God had done a work on her heart to show pity on this little Hebrew baby boy, which is a glimpse that God is going to work on the hearts of all those people, not just those who are from Israel, but also those who are from Egypt and beyond. Chapter 12 tells us when God's people eventually come out of Egypt, Egyptians actually, actually went with them there was a multitude of all different kinds of people let's not miss that at this point point. and let us see that whilst Pharaoh was concerned and preoccupied with the men of Israel God was using the women and even his own daughter to start the downfall and the redemption of the people he was oppressing don't you love that amazing Folks, as you read the Bible, this is something that is echoed right through Scripture, that God is regularly using women at the beginning and throughout the redemption story, even if the Redeemer, like in this case, is is a man. It's like that picture of childbirth, that God uses women to bring life into this world. He says to Eve right at the beginning, it is through your seed that the promised one will come, the Satan crusher will come. We see it was Rahab that assisted God's people in the conquering of Jericho. We see there was Ruth who becomes an ancestor of King David. It was Hannah who went to God before Samuel comes as a great prophet. It was Esther who rescued Israel. And it was through Elizabeth that John the Baptist was born. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it was Mary Magdalene, the first human being ever to see the risen Christ. And you know what? It doesn't just stop there, does it? It's not that God is just using women, but it's through the ingenuity of women, outmovering men who were in power. Who would have thought that, eh? Big surprise to us men. Women are like, they're the waters we swim in, fellas. (laughs) Every day. This is how God works out his purposes. He chooses and he uses people the world would not in order to bring about deliverance for his people. So we get to this point in the story that this fearful, insecure man has done everything that he can to oppress God, his people, his purposes, and his plans. And the means by which God will deliver his people is now living in his house is now living in his house and we see the next part of the story which is preparation for purpose chapter 2 verse 11 let's read one day when Moses had grown up he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people he looked this way and that and seeing no one he struck down the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to the father, Roel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called him his name Geshom, For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. What we see in this part of the story is that we see this preparation of Moses for the purpose that God had for him it tells us in Acts chapter 7 and Stephen there just before he's killed he's given like a sermon and he's given the history of all uh, of all God's people and in verse 22 he says this Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of, Egypt, of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds see God in his providence allows Moses to be brought up in the midst of the Egyptian regime, learning all the wisdom and all the instruction. And he becomes mighty in words and mighty in deeds. He gets an education. Now, it's really interesting. It's so important for us to see this, folks, that God in his goodness uses even the things in our past before he saves us to prepare us for the purpose that he has. So his time in Egypt was not wasted time. See, Moses was going to lead nearly 2 million people out of Egypt. He needed some sort of leadership skills. He needed to have some idea. He got it wrong on several occasions. We're going to see that. But he needed some idea. He needed something from from his background. I could even talk on my own background that I can see how God has used certain things, both the things which have been a blessing and the things that have been broken and busted up. To bring me to this point, and I pray for, for further afield. Within the Cornerstone Corrective, every single pastor in our church has done secular work before they've become pastors. And I'm telling you now, you can see the difference between those who have and those who haven't. God has used something in the context of what we would say, in inverted commas, as worldly in order to prepare for purpose. Whether you're in ministry or not, that's what God does. Whatever the background he is shaping and using. And for Moses here, it was a life of education. And we see there that God is working on his heart also because he grows in his compassion. It tells us there one day, verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. The original language gives this sense that he became passionate and had compassion for his people the hebrews and what was happening to them by the egyptians he was staring something up in his heart folks we have heard something absolutely amazing this morning from steve and ollie i don't know about you that video was outstanding just beautiful to see what God has done in through his people to bring a brother to the Lord Jesus to, to call him and say that he is death free but then for him to find out that in Christ he is completely death free. If that doesn't move you with compassion for people in those circumstances, I don't know what does. And in Moses' case, he comes and he sees an Egyptian beaten, and he's filled with compassion. But what he learns very quickly is that the salvation of the Israel people are not going to come through his works. Because how does he respond? He kills the Egyptian. Then he hides him. Buries him in the sand. See, he's coming very quickly to realize that salvation is not of works, but it's of grace. See, he takes the matter into his own hands. It doesn't go well. He kills the man, and then he loses any respect from the people that he has grown in compassion towards. See, it's not all plain sailing for us as God prepares us for a purpose. It's not always plain sailing. Sometimes we get it, we step in and we jump in too much. And then as a result, what happens? We try and take it into our own hands and we quickly realize that God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. Folks, our very salvation is of grace, not of works. It's all down to what he has done. And Moses here is being prepared to see that yes, Moses, you are growing in compassion. Yes, Moses, I'm going to use you, but it will be me who saves them. And as a result, he runs. And God takes him into the wilderness and we see that in the wilderness, he is shaped. Folks, in some sense, At this point of the story, Moses loses everything. It seems that his life has fallen apart and God takes him into the wilderness, the place of death, the place where there's no food, the place where there's no water, where the heat is constant and it's massive. But it's the wilderness, if we are willing to stay there for a while, where the dependency of God grows and shapes us. For some of us, that wilderness could be painful circumstances wherever they may be. And what we find is that our prayers are often, get me out of this, when I think our prayer should be, get me through this. And in getting me through it, shape me. When the heat is massive and there's nothing else that I can hold on to, draw me to my knees and help me throw all my dependency on you. And we see that starting to change Moses through this part of the story. Straight away when he arrives in Midian, rather than killing the shepherds, he just probably does the main and tells them to run off. And he goes from being somebody that was saved to somebody that saves shepherd girls. He gives them water. We see the God in the midst of the wilderness. Well, he gets brought into the family of the high priest of Midian. These were, God, these were people who knew God. And during that time there, he would have learned. And it tells us there, he come to realize that his past he was a sojourner, that actually that was not his home, but his home was found amongst God's people. You see, in the midst of the wilderness, God is preparing him for something. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that whilst he was tending the sheep, that he becomes a shepherd. He has to lead these sheep, these sheep that have got their own ideas and doing their own things. He has to lead them. He has to bring them in. He has to be tender towards them. He has to learn the geography of the wilderness, the typography of the land. Why? Because one day he's going to walk and take through two million sheep. He needs to know where he's going. See, Moses had to come out of Egypt before he could go back in. He had to come out of that, be shaped before he could go back in. And it takes 40 years in the wilderness to prepare him for what God has him to do. It said that Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be somebody. He was then 40 years in the wilderness learning to be nothing. So that he could spend 40 years proving God to be everything. Patience, folks. <laughs> Let us be patient as God prepares us, as God leads us. See, as he puts us through, these circumstances can be painful. But character is formed by these circumstances. So that when the moment God is preparing us for comes, however scary or challenging that might be, we are able, like Moses, to draw on those previous Exodus moments in our lives. Ephesians tells us this for by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own works. It's all a gift from God. So no one could boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. What does that mean? It means God is at work in our lives for his service. And he is using every moment. And not a moment is wasted for his glory and for his purpose. See, what we see here, that God clearly is preparing Moses for a purpose but I don't want us as we close to lose and to miss where the hope really lies. This is 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The people cried. They had nothing left. There was nothing more that they could do, and they cried out to him. It's interesting, in this part, the original language, it uses three different words to describe the prayer of God's people. describes a, It's a prayer of grief. It's a prayer of bitter distress. It's a prayer of painful Agony. Now folks, sometimes, and I know this is true for some of you now, the only prayer that we've got towards God is a groan from our hearts. Out of the depths I cry to your Lord. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice. And please show me mercy. The people cried. And God heard, and God saw. An old preacher said this, every blow of the hand that buffets you, every cut of the scourge, every scourging hour under the noontide sun, every lonely hour when l- your loved ones and friends stand aloof, every step into the valley of the shadow, every moment of sleep beneath the juniper tree is watched by the eyes that never slumbers or sleep. God heard them and God saw them. Folks, God hears you and he sees you. Psalm 34 the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. He sees you and he hears you. When you feel that nobody else does, he promises to. And, folks, this was the course over the course of many, many years. And we have to take from this that He, as God hears their cry, and He sees them, and He hears them. We've got to take them for those of, uh, 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 those of us who is His people, who are righteous, who have been saved, who have been slaved from the slavery, slavery of sin, He also sees, and He also hears us. So out of your depths, cry to Him. Cry to Him. See, the people cried. God heard, God saw, and God remembered. God remembered his promise. He remembered his promise to Abraham. And folks, we didn't read this like last week, and it's not on the screen because I've just added it this morning. A promise promise that God gave to Abraham was this in chapter 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, uh, behold, a dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their land, theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. God remembered their promise. These people have probably forgotten the promises of God in light of what was said to Abraham. In a short space of time, they are going to be delivered from Egypt and they will come out with great possessions. God remembered his promise. Even if the people had forgotten his promise, God hadn't. Folks, let's be thankful in the midst of our circumstances that we have a God who remembers his covenant. He remembers his love promise to us. Let us be thankful that it's not our sin that he remembers. Even though at times for us, that's all we can remember. He chooses to remember that no more. Amen? Amen. Let us remember that we have a God that in the midst of us crying out, hears us, sees us, and remembers the promise, the covenant, that he has given to us, that it's all down to him, that it's all about him, And we get to enjoy in the spoils of it. Let us remember. And finally, let us never forget that God knows. What a great way to let in this. God knew. He knew all about them. See, the original word gives this real suggestion that he knew them intimately. That he was personally acquainted with with their suffering. See the hope folks lies in a God who knows, a God who remembers, a God who hears, a God who sees, and a God who says, cry out to me. And this is true for us. Our hope lies with the same God, amen? A God who sees you A God who is faithful in keeping his promises towards you, even when you forget them. A God who has done everything that he can to redeem you. And a God who is intimately and personally acquainted with your suffering. See, our hope lies with a God who is the man of sorrows, who is acquainted with our grief with a God who was despised and rejected by men. A God who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. A God who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. A God who took the punishment that brought us peace and it's by the stripes that he was given, we are healed. In and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we can be assured that we have security in him. We can be brave for him, that he is working out and preparing us for workmanship that he has given us. And in the midst of however he takes us through that, he knows, he knows. Because it cost him, God the Father, his son, to assure us of that love. The rescue plan has begun. And God will use Moses to deliver his people. And folks, this all points to the rescue plan that has been accomplished through not Moses, but Jesus, our Savior, who hears, sees, remembers, and knows. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. So much for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that that hope lies with you. We thank you and we praise you. That you are kind, you are gracious, you are loving, and you are with us. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us. And Father, we have in front of us here... emblems, the reminders and us of how much it cost you and your son to redeem a people to yourself we thank you that the bread represents Jesus' broken body, that this juice and wine represent his spilled blood and we thank you and we praise you from the bottom of our hearts that as we look at that, we know that you know And we know that you remember. And we know that you see. So as we cry out, remind us by your spirit of how precious we are as your people. Accept of our praise, accept of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we're late this morning, very late. It's 12 o'clock. So we're going to sing, and as we sing, we'll pass the bread and we'll pass the wine. As the guys sing, and as we sing together, we'll do that. Because actually, this is cause for celebration. Amen? It's not a funeral service. It's a celebration party. that We have a God who knows. So the guys will pass the bread, and then they'll pass the wine together eat, drink. If you want to pray where you're standing with someone as they're singing, you can do that. God has the capabilities to hear our singing and our prayers at the same time so we can do that. So let's pass the, let's pass the wine and let's give thanks as we pray and as we praise together. Amen. And we'll get the kids in as well. And If they come in, don't worry. It won't be too chaotic. We'll enjoy it and celebrate together. Let's do that together. Let's eat and drink and be thankful.